Hey, welcome to Web3 Weekly with your host, Blockstar Technology. Let's go. You've got to... Hello. Okay. And welcome to episode 49 of Blockstar's Weekly. So today we have two very special guests and we're going to be talking all about the intersection of crypto and real world assets, especially in a legal context. So we have Sarah here live now and shortly we'll be joined by Gibran, who is running a little late. But Sarah, how's it going today? Can you hear me? Can, can do something. All right, so we are just waiting for her to um, join. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but that's okay. So while Sarah gets online and can hear us, I just want you guys to know that this is the 49th episode of um, Web3 Weekly, and we're going to be talking all about tokenization, real-world assets, um, the intersection of family law with cryptocurrency. Jared. Sorry, guys, you're going to have to bear with us. Um, for some reason, the mics aren't working. Anyway, so bottom line is we're going to have two great lawyers on. One specializes in family law and in the traditional content context. And we have Jabran, who specializes all about tokenization. So he's going to be talking to us today about the tokenization of real world assets. Here he is. Hi, Jebran. Oh, our mics aren't working for some reason. Go, go, just mute me as well. I don't know if they, hey guys, can you hear us? They still can't. Yeah. Oh, Jabran can. Do you want to have a, uh, go? Sarah, you can as well? Okay, so we're going to find out. Um, I can can you hear, I can't a... see. Oh, you can't see? Okay. Um, not sure. Sorry, guys, I do apologize. We're having a few technical difficulties. Our social media guy, Nathan, has taken off to Darwin for a little holiday and we miss him. And we've got Jared today for his replacement. So we'll figure this out shortly and then we'll <laughs> we'll restart the beginning. Hoping you're well. Um, Jabran, how do I pronounce your name? Am I saying it right? 
Yep, that's perfect. But okay, everyone, great. Everyone calls me Jabs anyway. So all right. Do you mind if I call you Jabs? Right. No problem at all. No problem. <laughs> okay. at all. Thank you so much. So, um, I can hear you guys, but you're just having trouble seeing me. Is that right? All right. Well, guys, yeah, we can see you live. So as long as you're okay with not seeing me, I promise you're not missing too much. Um, we'll restart the the podcast from the beginning. So um, welcome, everyone. This is episode 49 of Web3 Weekly. And today I'm joined with two specialists in their field, Sarah and Jabs. And I'm going to allow them both quickly to give an introduction, but today it's all it's going to be all about the intersection of crypto and real-world assets, especially in the legal context. So, Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself, your firm, and a little bit about what you do, and then we'll jump across to Jabs. So. Hi. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sarah Galvin. I'm the owner of Southern Beaches Family Law. We practice exclusively in family and domestic violence law. Uh, I've been a lawyer for 18 years now and have a couple of other roles as well. Family law, just a quick rundown. We do divorce, property settlement, uh, children's matters, anything along those roads. And we also do what we call financial agreements. So that's things that you might have heard, prenuptial agreements yeah. or cohabitation agreements for the de facto equivalent. Fantastic. And Jabs, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your firm and what you guys specialise in? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, yeah, look, my firm's called Aduva Legal. We're based in Sydney. Um, originally started as a just a standard property commercial law practice, um, but basically since early last year transitioned into the Web3 space. So yeah. now you kind of advise more up and coming projects. So not uh, not the projects that really can afford the big, big law firms. So we, we cater for more kind of general guidance, commercial documents, um, and trying to just just help the average project founder move along their way in the Web3 space. Okay, great. And just for the, our listeners who might be new to the show, my name is Maureen Gabriel. I'm the host for today. I am the in-house legal counsel here at Blockstars, and I also am the lead in the forensic department in forensic investigations. I do the cryptocurrency investigations and I am the certified charter cryptocurrency compliance professional here in forensic financial crimes. So I've got to say, guys, we've got a pretty good show lined up today because we have so many questions for you. And I don't know if you saw them coming through this morning, but um, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So I'll start shooting them off. Sarah, it's going to be the first one is to you. And I guess for our listeners and the benefit of other family lawyers not just in this space, but in general, because as the space grows, I know so many family lawyers have these same questions. So you just mentioned that you do a lot in the property split post-separation. So I just wanted to ask you, how does property usually get divided post-separation in the traditional setting? So, Yeah, so normally if if you don't have a financial agreement in place that determines your property settlement, the process used by the court is what we go by. Uh, if the court decides to divide uh, the assets between parties or arrange the own, rearrange the ownership, what they'll do firstly is we need to identify the property pool. And that's basically a list of all the assets, superannuation and debts that either party has. Uh, the court then goes on to look at a range of factors, which goes into what percentage of the pool each party keeps. And then we do the process of 
dividing the pool to get the right, I suppose, amount for each person. So where cryptocurrency comes in is it and other digital assets, they're very much part of the assets that can be divided in property settlement. So yeah, it's, I guess, firstly, the, the disclosure process comes first and in terms of identifying the pool. And then it's a very personalised process to divide up what's in the pool. Yeah, so Sarah, you mentioned the disclosure project uh, process. So how often do you get the feeling that the other party is not being entirely honest or frank with their disclosure when it comes to cryptocurrency? Uh Sometimes there's an, a reasonable amount of awareness. Somebody has some cryptocurrency of some sort. There's not a lot of knowledge about what it is, where it is, or how much it's worth. So it's, um, I mean, the hiding assets is sort of one of the oldest aims in the book. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to do because there's usually a paper trail. So we can usually see from things like bank statements or tax documents, money going out to purchase cryptocurrency or digital assets. So it's usually easy enough to get a whiff that it's out there. Uh, sometimes it's even disclosed, yes, I applied X amount of dollars to buy some. But that's where the trail goes cold quite often. We yeah. don't really have much visibility over what it is, how much it's worth. So I guess... Um, that's where we do have some problems. Yeah, so I guess that's basically where we come in um, in general. And I will just take this opportunity. I know you guys know that we do forensic investigations and I did see the both of you have pretty similar questions. So um, without talking too much on what we do, when the trail does go cold on your end, so that's normally where a lawyer, family lawyer, commercial lawyer, criminal lawyer, um, liquidator would normally engage our services and we help and assist in taking that cold, cold um, trail and basically looking on chain. The best thing about distributed ledger technology is that Everything is on chain, but it can be very, very difficult to track and trace if you don't have the right software and the right um, investigation techniques. And on that note, Jabs, given your perspective, what sort of challenges do you see from what Sarah said with the challenges that are evolving when it comes to real world assets being tokenized? Do you think that's going to make her job easier, harder when it comes to tokenization of world assets? Oh, look, I mean, I think there's going to be a very bumpy transition period until we, as I guess, a country or globally, try to get to the bottom of exactly how we're going to deal with them. Um, because when we talk about real world assets, it can be basically anything. Um, yeah. You know, so we, it could be as something as you know, complicated as a as a property or, um, you know, a debt instrument, or it could be something as simple as, you know, sneakers. Um, it's, it doesn't, this, the thing is so broad as a definition, um, and we're always going to end up with issues where um, you have something in the IRL, the real world, and how it gets then represented on chain is going to be another thing that we have to determine. Like, most of the times, the two kind of general ways that it it's been done at the moment is you actually have the tokens themselves um, or you will have an NFT, for example, that will represent a right to ownership of something like it could just be an entry ticket, for example. Um, so I think in when, it, when we move forward with um, the legal situation, it's going to be a matter of determining, okay, what is, what is the exact relationship going to be between the, the asset in the real world um, and what rights are, 
attached to the token itself digitally because the rights, as we know, in a digital context, things move so quickly. Um, that's the advantage of having it on chain is because you have the 24 hours, non-stop, global, borderless um, tra you know, transfers, so on and so forth. Um, and that's, that's the advantage of it. But the disadvantage is, well, our laws specifically are of a you know, na national or a state level. And yeah. now how do we then as a country then fit into the global situation? And then, so there are going to be a fair few challenges, I think, moving forward. But the, the basic issue underlying a lot of it is going to be what level of understanding um, we generally have, and then we as lawyers have, and then we as, you know, politicians yeah. and so on and so forth as a country will have. And I agree with you. And, and of course, for anyone that knows um, anything about crypto or digital assets, it is a borderless, you know, um, setup where it's global, worldwide. We have a lot of conflicting laws globally. And so, Jabs, that brings me to my next question. For people that are listening that may not actually fully understand what tokenization is and how it's changing the landscape for real world assets, do you think you could just explain that a little bit more clearly for our listeners? And he's dropped out. <laughs> so um, we're unfortunately having so many technical issues today. Sarah, oh, there he is. Did you get that question? Just dropped off though. I'd missed that question. <laughs> um, so I was just saying for our for the benefit of our listeners that may not be fully across what tokenization actually means, do you mind just giving us a quick explanation of what tokenization is and how it's changing the landscape of real world assets? Okay. Um, look, simply put, it's tokenization refers to getting something that's physically existing in the real world um, or take away the word physically it just exists in the real world and then how we take that thing and we represent it on chain so on the actual blockchain so there is some degree of relationship between the assets itself and the token or the nft or the soulbound token or anything like that on chain now the the disadvantage that we have is there is no clear cut way of doing that. Um, and yeah. that's where we always run into hiccups is, well, okay, people are doing it so many different ways, even though there might be a popular way to do things, um, but there is no truly tried and tested method that gives people the satisfaction that there is going to be 100% one-to-one. So um, a lot, of, I mean, the biggest example that we have currently are stable coins like usdc for example yeah so the idea behind a stable coin is that that um the coin itself so the us dollar on chain so the representation or the token itself on chain is backed one-to-one -one with um, us dollars held by circle the company that runs the the, um, the stable coin itself now it's a good thing that that company has, you know, monthly audits and they show us their books and they release that information that, look, this is how much we hold. And it's not in physical cash. They have hold it in treasuries or bonds, things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but at the end of the day, we are still relying on this intermediary and trusting that the representations that are, they are making on chain are what we say they are going to be. And that's where things can fall apart is if the intermediary itself is not a reliable entity. So 
it goes and moves away from, I guess, the trustless system that we're trying yeah. to build in Web3. Um, so there, as I said, there's going to be a lot of speed bumps in the transition phase, um, yeah. but eventually I, the hope is that we'll get it, I guess, right or as right as we can. Sure. And so Jabs, um, what kind of assets can be tokenized? Is it is is there anything off bounds? Is it all real world assets that can be tokenized? Are there any limitations to what can be tokenized? Anything, anything really. You're, whatever you can imagine can be tokenized. Um, I, I think I read a, I read a thread last week where someone had tokenized their collection of sneakers. I think it was, and they and they had passed those sneakers to a intermediary custody company. That yeah. company then gave an NFT to the person on chain that that company held those assets and the asset had a certain value. That person okay. then used that NFT as collateral for a loan in a DeFi protocol. So it, it's, it's, it's just, there's a lot of ways we can use this technology. There's a lot of ways that it will benefit and allows a lot of access to the financial system. That's, that's one of the yeah. big kind of ticket items is that it will give everyday people with an internet connection access to the financial system they might not be able to access otherwise um so but then the problem then i guess is how do we make sure that the representation on chain is equivalent to the actual i guess sneakers or ticket or property or yeah. other other asset that is held in the real world and i guess that leads me to my next question because I think this will flow quite well to the question I'm about to ask Sarah afterwards. You mentioned custody, but what we'd really like to know is what actually happens to the real world assets? Is it always a matter of having the asset in custody? Whose who's custody are we talking? Where's the credibility? Like what, what are the actual legalities about who can hold it in custody for it to appear as a tokenized asset? And this is, this is where the problem is. Um, yes. So we haven't figured that one out yet. So there's a, diff, a whole heap of attempts and experiments, I guess, put it that way. Um, so some are held as companies, some are held by trust structures, um, some are just bare trusts. Like so there's some are based offshore, some are in Australia. Well, there's not really much in Australia, but some are in the US. So again, it's we don't exactly know what is going to be the ideal situation uh, because yep. trying to really fit this web three world into web two jigsaw there is no there is no real legislation yet especially in australia we, we really are lagging in that respect um, okay. so it is a to be can to be determined kind of area and again then we have to because of those limitations and because of the lack of legislation, we then have to really give, have, have, have faith in these intermediaries um, in that they will do the right thing. Of course, there's some protections like consumer law protections and yeah. that, that are still present in law. Um, however, they're only as, as good as, I guess, you can explain it to a judge that this is what's happened. So we're, we're yeah. still a fair bit away from making it a streamlined process. Exactly right. And Sarah, um, I mean, given the fact that you mentioned it can be difficult when the trail goes cold with cryptocurrencies, after hearing that, what are your thoughts on, you know, how this could impact the post split of, you know, um, property splits in the future with tokenization? The problem will be, as 
very similar one. So what we need to do in property settlement is to identify um, what the asset is and I guess what in part of that would be what rights, if somebody has a token, what rights do they have? The second thing that we would want to identify is what's the value, so what is it worth? And that's going to be a very uh, problematic issue for a court to determine or for even lawyers trying to advise a client to determine if it's unclear what rights they have with a token if somebody does own one and and how do we place a value on that also if you did place a value and that's part of the problem with things even like ordinary shares or any kind of currency if the value fluctuates significantly and suddenly then we've got a moving uh, feast on which we're trying to do one deal so it has certain problems and it also has issues so we wanted to find out for example if the the asset is overseas um, it, it, we have real jurisdictional problems then getting information from a co- getting a, a court in Australia to have any impact on getting that information from overseas. It's problematic. And so how do you see these issues um, and challenges translating into family law, given that we're now looking at global jurisdictions, we have the issue of the value of asset, but also where the physical asset might be. What, what do you think we are looking at in terms of the translation into family law as it stands today? Or are we going to need to create an entire new law to deal with family law issues? Well, the, the structure of family law will still be fine. The problem is going to be, uh, I mean, so far we ha- it hasn't been as much of a problem because uh, a couple's shareholdings might be relatively small compared to the rest of the property pool. So... There have been workarounds or ways around it uh, to date, but as I think there's going to be much more investment in dollar terms from the property pool into these digital products, you it is going to increasingly be a problem that we're going to have to find a solution for. And simply finding a way to identify uh, what somebody owns and how much it's worth, uh, that can be um, difficult. So thus far, the one particular case that's dealt with this uh, in the absence of detailed information about uh, what cryptocurrency the husband had and how much it was worth, simply said, well, uh, we'll accept and adopt the approach. We'll just take whatever was removed from the property pool to purchase it as the value. Yeah. It's a workaround. It's not really a solution, was- which is long-term. And certainly uh, we will have to find perhaps better ways uh, of getting information. Was that the uh, Powell case? Actually- was that the Powell case? Powell and Christensen. Yeah, right. So yeah. that is, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was an ad back, right? So, I mean, I, th- I feel as though we can see a lot of issues with that alone, considering mm. the the crypto market is incredibly volatile. It is a volatile speculative mm. asset. So what, in your opinion, based on what you've just said, how do you see that in terms of fairness? I know you know, we, we don't always look at it from the perspective of being fair, but imagining a relationship was good at one point and someone goes, because they don't do that for a normal stock, do they? Like it it would never be your property settlement. Yeah, your property settlement does need to be fair yeah. and part of that is sort of determining. So if you had, for example, a set of shares, yeah. uh, that would be included in the pool and could be divided. Uh, the, the difference is really perhaps that with um, a share in, say, a blue chip 
stock that you could readily see it on perhaps, um, say, a Comsec share account mm -hmm. dashboard. Uh, or if I know there's X number of shares in this company, I can look up for quite easily what, what that value is and they can be easily traded and liquidated and dealt with. That becomes much more problematic yeah. with something that's volatile. That is the trick. It's um, if perhaps uh, there's an issue about the value of an item of property for this purpose, yeah. sometimes the answer is we'll sell it and that's that's the value there. But if you liquidate an asset, you could be looking at tax implications. So whether that's income or capital yeah. gains tax, potential problems if you liquidate that interest. And maybe you can't, depending on what kind of interest it is. Maybe you can't trade it easily. So maybe you could explain the outcome of that case to us in a little bit more detail. So we anyone that's been in the crypto space for a while, especially in the bear market, unfortunately, a lot of us know that a cryptocurrency can lose its value by 90% or something within a, a matter of months. So if you had a one of the partners in a, in a relationship invest money and the cryptocurrency lost 90% and they couldn't determine what it was, is it almost like double punishment to take the original capital and then not consider the loss that it made and still make them contribute the capital that they paid despite the loss? Look, the, the current value is the current value. Yeah. And uh, what would happen with shares and same with uh, any kind of cryptocurrency, what its value is today is what its value is today. Yeah. Uh, sometimes shares will go up, go down, values go up, go down. Uh, that is just uh, the reality of the type of asset that you have and we use today's value. And if it goes down, it goes down. Uh, unless somebody deliberately tanks the value of an asset, today's value is today's value and that's what we use. Uh, the court in that particular case had used the purchase price in the absence of proper disclosure yeah. about the actual holding, uh, where it was, what it was, and and there was no reliable evidence about what it was worth. In a different matter where there was full and frank disclosure, the outcome might have of been course, different. Of course. Uh, so unfortunately with, again, like the shares, if the value drops, then your value drops. Assets can depreciate or appreciate, and that is yeah. just part of life. The trick is when it moves so fast, uh, we're trying to pin it at a point in time. Of course. And that can be quite difficult to say, well, today it was worth this, tomorrow it's worth that. So definitely, we, uh, we settle today, we settle tomorrow, different outcome. All right. And Jabs, here's mm. one for you. So what are some of the legal challenges that people face when dealing with tokenized assets and cryptocurrencies? In your experience, what are some of the legal issues or challenges they've faced? Um, well, it depends what lens we're viewing it from. So if you're viewing it from, I guess, the project founder side, yeah. the challenge really is how are you going to structure this in a way that you give the correct rights to the person on chain um, mm -hmm. and then at the same time comply with your obligations. So your obligations as a founder might be something as, you know, if it's a ticket to an event, simply uploading their names or, you know, personal information online. Now, you run in with the issue where if it's an anonymous wallet that buys buys the ticket, how do you deal with that? Um, if it's a property, for example, you still you need to have proper KYC. You need to meet AML CTF requirements. Like those need to be disclosed. Yeah. Um, so it's really about okay, how you transfer the right across, give people on chain enough satisfaction that what they're buying there 
is going to be represented in the real world. So that's the first point from a yeah. kind of project founder point of view. Um, when you're looking at it from the lens of a person on chain, now, now you're in a predicament where you don't know exactly what this token represents unless you go through all the legal docs that, uh, that come associated with the token or the asset itself. Um, so yeah. it's not as simple as simply buying it from an exchange or you know Uniswap or something like that um, because you don't know exactly what rights you're getting. Now, some people sure. will just buy it as, a, again, a speculative asset and just assume that, for example, if it's a tokenized gold bar or something like that, that it will automatically appreciate and the company will do well, but you don't know what the company is um, going to do in the real world. You don't know what the obligations are. So of most course. people are not are not in that position where they're going to review the legal documents before yeah. they buy the token itself. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the times, people on chain will be speculating on, on tokens based on the actual tokenomics. Um, and then on the flip side, when you look at it from the project's perspective, how do you make tokenomics which are going to do well and people are going to actually, um, you know, find that as an asset that is worthwhile holding. So there are there are those kind of issues moving forward. Um, and then from a legal sense, the person on chain, well, how do you verify that what you have, if there is a capital gains event, well, is there a capital gains event? So a lot of tax okay. implications are there. Unfortunately, I don't do tax just specifically yeah. for that reason, because it's <laughs> way too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so there are other implications down the line by just simply holding an asset. And then what happens if that, again, what if happens if that company gets liquidated? What rights did you actually have to that reward asset? You don't, we don't know until you actually read the documents and you find out, okay, this is what it was. Maybe it's just a license to access a property. Maybe yeah. it's not a fractional ownership of a property. So th there is, again, because it's such a broad concept in itself, um, and we haven't, there is no definitive one way, unfortunately, right now. Um, yeah. So people that are really speculating on it, on real world asset tokens, really have to review the documents um, and then see, see what they're actually buying but, into. Yeah. And it just goes to show the real complexity of it. So Jabs, can you give us an idea? What do some of your clients come to you to do? Like, do you want to give us like a real case example what you've had to deal with some of the things you may have to work through with some of your clients i imagine people would probably think it's very simple they've seen it done on the internet they come to you with an idea talk us through what that might actually look like and some of the hurdles that you've had to go through here in australia in the case that you've done obviously without breaking confidentiality in any matters yeah of course um okay so i from kind of the tokenization point of view, I've only really advised project founders. Um, mm. No one really as a speculative consumer has come to me and said, oh, review these legal documents for me because <laughs> what's the point of spending on legal fees there? Um, but so I guess one, one example could be a, kind of recently a potential client come in where they want to tokenize um, gold bars. And so yep. they have access, put it this way, um, to to gold both in Australia and overseas. Um, they're mm -hmm. getting different, uh, I guess, in their view, great rates on that. Um, and they would want that to be represented on chain through an NFT, an NFT that would then give, um, I guess, a quarterly or some time period yield based on 
some arbitrage opportunity that they can they can get take the benefit of. Um, now the the issue with that again, it's it's I guess a repetition of what I've said before is well that's great in in theory it makes a lot of sense let's do this why not, but number one well how are you going to quality control um, the items that you the gold that you're getting that's simple yeah. that would happen in the real world anyway it's not even a web three problem um, and then all right let's let's say you've got all the logistics of the real world side down pat then what am i as a lawyer going to draft for you as a as an agreement between you or your company and the person holding your token or nft on chain i mean what what does that document look like exactly yeah what rights are you going to give them are you going to give them say look all right by doing this we're going to guarantee you a yield are you going to do that well that's that's another problem in itself um okay if you're not going to guarantee them a yield all right uh, what are they going to get uh there's an nft representation and then how are you going to market that that if yeah uh, if you don't say that they guarantee so the intersection is really a little bit more complex than just the legal side of things itself yeah um it's a lot of times i've found that project founders don't really appreciate that there are other implications just simply by market forces themselves um, yeah so my advice is generally yes legal advice but then i also ask all these probing questions to say well have you actually thought about this because if you haven't then well the indemnity clauses that I draft better be really good, right? And the disclaimers <laughs> be really good, right? What's your liability going to be? It's going to be $1 or $100 or the amount that they invested. So, I mean, it's, they might, they might seem like irrelevant questions at the time. And a lot of project founders get frustrated why I ask them, but I, I do need to ask those questions because the document that I then produce has to then kind of mirror what your expectations are and what the expectations of, the end consumer are going to be as well. Um, so, and this doesn't even take into account any kind of licensing requirements. That I was just needed. about to ask right. you that. So, <laughs> so, yeah, because um, we've seen a lot of change with licensing, correct. financial licensing requirements, security act. Like, are you able to speak to any of that? Oh, look, maybe in just broad brush terms. Yeah, um, this but... is not legal advice, by the way. <laughs> yeah, of course, no, no. Let's just no, no. put we'll, that we'll have disclaimer a massive disclaimer <laughs> throughout the whole podcast, I think. Um, but it, put it this way, if it seems like an investment vehicle, then yeah. in all likelihood, whether it's today or tomorrow, or in five years' time, you are going to be held responsible to as if it was an investment vehicle. That, that's that's yep. the assumption that I give to all clients. So if you are going to go down this path, your documents better be airtight. Um, you, you, um, things like any representations that you're making, whether it's in the legal documents or the marketing material, better be what you are actually doing. Um, and things moving forward are only gonna get easier for ASIC and the ATO to track down because it's an immutable contract, I mean, immutable blockchain. So yeah. moving forward, it's not something that founders are really going to be able to avoid actively. And then the second layer to that is going to be, well, now you're going to be working in a global context, right? So then are you going to have US citizens be a party, right? We, we already know that there's been quite a 
bit of a hostile environment regulatory wise in the US. Mm. Are you going to have EU citizens required? Then you need to comply with the MECA legislation. Then you need an office in Europe. I mean, so there's a there's a lot of a lot of intricacies that um, projects really need to consider. And I guess because of that, a lot of project founders really get worried um, because I maybe I scare them off, who knows, but <laughs> it's just things that they have not thought about because it was never something to think about um, because uh, regulators and governments weren't really giving um, the crypto space or Web3 space any kind of serious attention. But yeah. now, ever since, especially last year, um, everything that's happened, there it's it's clearly front and center of a lot of governments around the world. Um, and there seems to be a race um, globally to see which jurisdiction will be the most favorable um, and capture all this innovation. Um, and so we, we, we can't ignore the fact that it's going to be something global and it's going yeah. to be a phenomenon that if you are creating projects, it's just things that you will need to think about moving forward. Um, and so I'm not sure entirely if I answered that question, but I went on a bit. No, of a I think you did a great but, job. Um, I mean, yeah. yeah, we need to be a, a little bit vague so no one takes it yeah. too and seriously. I think <laughs> people really need to understand how big real world assets are going to be. I mean, the estimates this year put it at somewhere between 13 to 20 trillion by 2030. So, and that's only talking about physical assets like commodities, gold, oil, yeah. uh, property itself, things like that. And then if you then incorporate other things that can be tokenized, which would be, again, going back to the sneaker example or, you know, oh, art think, collections, yeah. for example, um, you know, things like that, which could be tokenized potentially then fractionalized. And you yeah. know, you, you're adding on a lot of layers, which over time people won't, really need to understand the tech to appreciate they will just hop on a website and it will just happen seamlessly but in the background yeah. um i will probably get a lot of white hairs by then because i have no idea how to deal with all of these aspects because the regulators just have to play a lot of catch up yeah sarah i'd love to know um what are some of the pain points you've seen have you come across any tokenized assets so far in your separation, property separation dealings in terms of cryptocurrencies? Do you have any real life examples of some of the issues that you've had to maneuver your way around? Some of the, I mean, I know that we, in terms of getting a subpoena, there's no one central place that you can actually get a subpoena from because there's so many different third parties involved. Give us, give out myself and our listeners an idea of some of the things that you've gone through, how you've worked around them and how you see the landscape changing to really appreciate these challenges in the future. Well, it hasn't been as fully, um, there's been, I suppose, a small scale problem with it, but a lot of it doesn't actually get pushed right to the edge. So you touched upon so if, if we're in proceedings we can go subpoena a bank we can go subpoena certain other places to find some information around the actual currency uh so that that is an option but that's a jurisdictional point as well so what we can find is usually what's inside australia quite the there are orders that you can get against somebody to provide more information if you think there's something out there that there yeah. isn't so more orders for disclosure and the process is that way. Have you ever had to issue an Anton Pillar order 
and obtain electronic devices and go down that route or well I was about to say the um, they're the the Anton pillars are the sort of search and seizure orders. Yeah. Uh, they can be done ex parte, so you uh, you can go and apply for orders to basically go and seize a device to do yeah. a forensic investigation. I've not had to do one yet. Most of the cases, going back to your question, that I've come yeah. across, they've been sort of more uh, people have put in a small amount just to. I guess put their toe in the water of that investment and yeah. it was easy there was a novelty factor to it uh the when it comes to property settlement there is sort of a we hit a wall at a particular point because it will cost a lot of money perhaps to run down these rabbit holes and find yeah. these holdings and there's always sort of a proportionate approach in most cases so we look at okay well what is the size of the property pool and most people's assets are their biggest assets might be property so a house an investment property mm-hmm. real estate or a superannuation or other more tangible assets so compared to the rest of the property pool their currency shareholding might be a small one relative in value so there's very rare cases where it becomes i suppose necessary to start delving into those kind of um, inquiries, anything past a very basic level for us in terms of disclosure, we've sort of got to that point, well, is it really worth going down there? How much is this likely to be worth? Often a client might say, look, I just want this over and done with. Um, I don't care. I don't think there's much to it. Let let the other person just have it. I want it over with. So that does come into play a little bit in property settlement as well. So it's not there aren't many cases where this has really been tested, tried, challenged past a basic level. Mm. And that's usually, I think, just reflective that they're relatively small investments. Uh, so if you have a very big investor, though, that's where you're going to start to yeah. find. Uh, well, as as time goes on and investment increases in these kind of products and people are buying um, more tokens or any other currency products, then then we're going to, I think, have to look at much more, uh, I suppose, sophisticated ways of starting to actually go into um, those inquiries. Right. And if it's even possible, because there's always the uncertainty. So as Jabs pointed out, if you own, for example, um, one of those products, what rights does it give you? And then how much is it worth? Uh, that's that's really almost an expert area. Yeah. So you would have to get an expert involved to even start answering some of those basic questions about what it's worth because we're not really sure what that person's bought. So, uh, again, that proportionality to what you're doing in property settlement isn't there at the moment, but I think it's going to be an increasing problem in future. And if we were to remove, um, for example, tokenized assets, and just to focus for a little bit in your area on cryptocurrency, maybe a little bit easier to deal with in terms of the valuation and the location and understanding that there were quite a few people in Australia that were lucky enough to invest early. And I suppose in a lot of these matters would be relying on the fact that there's a lot of lack of knowledge here. So people that are in the space have a pretty good knowledge of what certain things are worth and have been worth over time. And then I guess if their counterpart is not as knowledgeable, they ultimately might be passing up quite a big chunk of the asset pool by saying, I don't care, or having that sort of, you know, 
emotion towards it. What would you say to someone in that position? Would you still encourage them to do initial basic searches to see if cryptocurrency was, you know, in a possibility in the asset pool or would you just? Absolutely. My advice is to always make those basic inquiries for any asset, superannuation account or debt. Um, You don't know what you're agreeing to if you're not really sure what's in the pool to divide up. So it is uh, relatively easy to make some basic inquiries, uh, requests for disclosure or even if you're in proceedings, some basic subpoenas um, and using some of those easy options to try and get that through. I mean, there are penalties for failing to comply with court orders and failing to provide disclosure. So uh, there is also the risk if somebody fails to disclose and then actually has an item of large value and their ex finds out, you might then have uh, the ex wants to apply to have it reopened uh, if there wasn't full and frank disclosure. So we sort of use those quite readily. Um, My advice is sort of you would always want to at least ask the basic questions. how far you want to push those inquiries is another matter, but at least ask the question, yeah. what's it worth? All right. And Sarah, uh, if you had a client come in now and they suspected maybe their partner or ex-spouse had cryptocurrency holdings, what would you, for example, you know, advise them to do? Like we, we also advise some of our clients to do it, but in, in the sense of a family law matter, would you go through a list of telling them to check the bank statements, emails? Like what, what is your advice generally just for listeners and other family lawyers to benefit from it? Yeah, so first off in that process, we might ask for a whole range of documents by way of disclosure. Yeah. And that's at the outset of negotiations. So uh, that for anybody involved in that process, there'll be bank statements, tax returns, uh, for X number of years, um, superannuation, screenshots, account statements, all of that kind yeah. of thing. You make a specific request if you think they've got uh, any cryptocurrency, you ask for um, any information that's available about the wallet or however it is. So once you first get some of those documents too, you might get, for example, a range of bank statements, go through the bank statements and look for like anything, we would usually have a check for any unusual transactions, so large amounts being sent mm. to another account that we haven't got disclosure about, or many small regular transactions. Again, where is it gone? So it's a basic question we ask in property settlement generally. Is it to another bank account? Um, is is there something we haven't seen? Is there an investment we don't know about? Which could be currency, could be something else. Yeah. So we normally start by finding out where the money is leaving and sort of follow the trail from there. And Sarah, so how would you go about, for example, sorry, I'm just digging a little bit because I'd like to know. So in terms of someone that says, you know, I've lost my private keys or I can't find the hard drive or I no longer have access to that, what would the, what would you do? How would you deal with it? Sorry. That's, that's very difficult uh, because it's, it's like dealing with cash because there isn't visibility over it. It's very hard to prove or disprove what's there or not. Yep. Uh, that's the point where you really have to sort of say to the client, look, give me as much information as you can about what it is, where it might be. Um, if there is re- really very little way of recovering it, yep. then it might, it's going to be very difficult. So, for example, unless you've got something, you know where a hard drive is that you might be able to seize. Um, we're 
where do I start? Yeah. So that that is the problem. Uh, sometimes, like, uh, if someone says, oh, they used to have cash and we don't know whether it's there or not. Well, if it's cash, we can't trace that. Yeah. So how much is it? Uh, what difference is it going to make to your property pool and your property settlement? Is it big enough that it, it's worth paying me to do something about it or not? Yeah. That's, it gets a very, very difficult decision that as lawyers we advise the clients, look, these are the considerations you weigh up. You, you know, what would you like me to do? Do we chase this down or of course, do you of course. say, look, um, if they claim the hard drive's gone or they don't know where the key is, uh, are there any forensic options? If there aren't and we're looking for a drive that may or may not exist. Yeah, so forensically, forensically if they do have the wallet address and there is, there are funds in the mm. wallet, generally you can put a monitor on that mm. wallet so they might say that they have mm. lost the keys, you know, conveniently and the wallet's not accessible but a lot of the times they sit and wait <laughs> for the matter to pass by but we often do put some monitoring on wallets just to ensure that there is no if it was really lost and it's lost and just to ensure that there's no movement in and out of that wallet after the proceedings have settled of course you'd be able to reopen the proceedings given the evolving um, landscape and how quickly and rapidly it evolves how do you both keep up like what what are some of the tools that you use how are you keeping up to date uh we have a joke in the office that um technology especially crypto moves in dog years there's been a number of times we've worked on projects that have been legal at the beginning of the week and literally illegal by the end of the week can you guys give us an idea of what you do to keep up with a rapidly changing landscape jabs if you want to go first feel free oh yeah look i mean i'm I'm pretty active on Twitter now, um, so have been since probably midway through last year. Um, I realized that that's where a lot of the crypto community was, still is, well, X, whatever you, if you want to call it that now. Um, so I, you, you will find me, Gibran the Lawyer. I, I do a bunch of threads. I, I write a few things. I have an NFT or a bunch of NFTs because that's... I'm pretty involved in the space now. Yeah. It's it's become more of a not not so much of a business, but more of a hobby as well. So uh, that's kind of where I keep up to date. And thankfully, I've met met a lot of uh, really good people like you guys as well along the way, and that keeps keeps me on a, on my toes and make sure that I'm still up to date on how the landscape is changing, you know, day in day out. Okay, Sarah, what about you? How are you, how are you keeping up yeah. with this? <laughs> well, uh, I think generally with any, we talk to other family lawyers, it's sometimes there's friendly friendly others out there. So what what's happening, what problems they're facing? I had this case when, so you kind of get a, a feel for what's in the family law landscape that way. Um, on the technical side of things, it's basically ask ask somebody who's an expert. Yeah. Uh, find, yes. find Cozzy at a coffee and pin him in the corner and ask him questions. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, or, or talk to people who would use their specialty area. Okay. I couldn't keep across it in the same way that Jabs can. So yeah. if something comes up, I'll go ask him. So we're all leaning on each other in this one. And I did see that you both um, had the same question in, in the chat previously, wanting to know what services are offered in forensic investigations and how people can be helped. And I guess um, some of the matters that come to us, we have such a, a large range. We do have a lot of family law matters come before us um, where, you know, you'll have 
the instance of one partner having emails or having evidence and having some stuff and they'd like to track and trace and see what the value of a crypto is or how much they're holding in a wallet or where their partner has moved it because they're moving it from wallet to wallet trying to conceal money. We do a lot of those. We've had a lot of people come in where they have um, unfortunately been scammed and sent, you know, money gone and wanted to get rich quickly, bought some you know, USDT sent it to an exchange, it's a fake account. Now they need to prove that they have actually been scammed and the money is lost. We um, provide briefs of evidence to support that after on-chain and off-chain investigations have been done. So there's a lot of preliminary um, investigations done and the reports are provided for both insurance law authorities and government agencies. We do do a lot of track and trace um, on chain for sometimes we've had a number of companies go into liquidation and the directors thought they were quite clever and thinking that cryptocurrency is anonymous, sold the company assets and moved it all into cryptocurrency and tried to hide it. We've had a number of those so far. What else? So we assist our clients with guiding them through um, the process of collection of evidence, what they need. In order to prepare some of their subpoenas, we liaise with exchanges on behalf of our clients. Um, We do provide preliminary and full reports, full investigations that are credible and meet court standards so that they hold the necessary weight um, in court as expert reports. So we do do a bunch of things here to assist um, parties that are dealing with crypto assets, cryptocurrency investigations, forensic investigations. But before we go, I do want to ask you both, um, and this is to both of you, and I'd love to hear your opinions, and I'm sure the list is going to be long and hard, but from both perspective in both um, respective fields, what do you think the limitations of the current laws are in addressing crypto assets? Just rattle off a few. I'm sure I know there's plenty, but just in your respective areas, where are we currently limited with the laws? Who'd like to go first? I don't know. How much time do we have? <laughs> We've got about four minutes. So you've got two minutes each, so I'll keep it brief. Um, look, I think the, I guess I could narrow it down to two two problems, two major overarching problems. Yeah. One is that there is a very little, very little understanding um, in the political sphere of what this tech is what it's set up to do, what it can do, and how it's evolving. So there's, and partly, I guess it is a fault of those that are involved in Web3 because there is always a barrier in that communication to say, look, this is how we do things and how does it translate over to the real world, real world legislation. There's not a lot Mm. of people in the middle and that's kind of how I position myself is to yeah. be in the middle and I, that's why I call myself a web 2.5 lawyer I don't even say <laughs> because it's I'm, I'm literally in the middle that that's what I'm yeah doing. yeah um so that's the first I think point and then the second point really is and it flows on from that is there is just a lack of priority when it comes to this um yeah and I mean in Australia specifically we we had the token mapping paper earlier this year we were promised yeah. that some what were your thoughts on that Oh, look, I wrote like three, three articles on that. Yeah. Uh, I, I had many, many thoughts. I put in a submission as well. Um, it helps yeah. other parties put in submissions. So look, put it this way. There was, 
there was a degree of an understanding more than I thought the government had um, or, yep. you know, the department had. Um, however, there was clear limitations. And one of those limitations is, you know, when we start defining these things, we need to be defining them in a way that caters for their evolving nature. We can't define them in a static context to then say, yeah. all right, let's let's review this legislation in two years or three years time. It's by that sure. time the innovation is gone from our country. By that time it's too late. Um, and that's where I think governments don't really appreciate how quick things are evolving in this space. Um, yeah, and I agree. Because of that lack of appreciation, lack of understanding, we don't give it that priority. Whereas I've always maintained that Australia is in a very unique position um, in in capturing how this innovation evolves. We have so much talent. I I'm always talking to people, always guiding them. We have we have so many builders and developers, both um, you know software, marketing uh, across the board. There's so much talent in Australia in the Web three crypto space, um, and surprisingly a lot of them want to actually do it correctly as well um, yeah. and that's why my focus has really been on the education side of things that's what i really okay. kind of do um and because we we have all of that talent i think we're in a very unique position where we have we can produce favorable legislation to capture that innovation um, we already seen other western countries that are really approaching it in from a very harsh perspective Whereas yeah. a lot of Asian countries are approaching it with a very light touch and very pro-innovation. Yeah. So we're kind of in that middle middle area and we're still saying, look, let's see what others do and we will follow along. Mm -hmm. um, and my worry always is that we will follow along kind of the wrong path. So yeah. Um, and yeah. I, we don't we don't want all the people that are building. We've got we've got multi-million dollar companies that have been developed in Australia in this space. I mean, it's, it's I'm not talking small small amounts of money. We've got a lot of VC funding happening in Australia, still happening in the bear market. So, it's it's not it's not some small cookies that we should just ignore. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's where we need to make sure that others understand and give it that that priority that's that is needed. Thanks so much, Sarah. Over to you. Uh, I think probably on two levels. Firstly, like Jabs has covered, the uncertainty about what you have when you buy a product, what are your rights, what, are enfor what enforceability do you have? Um, that uncertainty about um, around the products generally is going to be problematic and definitely need uh, whatever Jabs said. <laughs> but also I think um, in terms of when we're doing uh, property settlements, mm. um, if these any of these products are overseas, a jurisdictional point is going to be the one that we come up against probably most often. For these products in Australia, it's one thing. But once uh, people are investing overseas, um, that's where we're really getting into this awful situation where uh, different countries, different rules, no, you know, no synergies, uh, where that uncertainty is going to really be, a, I think, a big problem too. So that definitely needs some kind of legislative regime one way or the other yeah well thank you so much to the both of you um before we go i would love for you both to tell our listeners where they can find you and how they can get in contact with you if they need your services which after this podcast i have no doubt that you'll be hit up as experts in your field so sarah can you please let our listeners know how they could get in touch with you if they need a family lawyer for post separation split property splits yeah, uh, look, uh, 
I'm on the web, southernbeachesfamilylaw.com.au, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Uh, I'm based at the southern end of the Gold Coast. Uh, So come and visit if you like, but I'm happy to get in touch with anybody through any of those means. Great. Um, We'll attach your uh, contact details to the link and in the description below the link. Jabs, how about you? How can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, if you want um, kind of Web2 property commercial advice, then you can go to the actual law firm website at duvalegal.com today. Yeah. Um, if you want more of the crypto side, then it's jabrandalawyer.com and jabrandalawyer on Twitter. So you can set up a time, we can chat. Um, I'm based in Sydney, but um, advising projects both nationally and internationally. All right. And thank you so much. I feel as though we're probably going to have to get you guys on to a follow-up episode because there are still so many questions that people wanted answers to. But thank you so much both for your time today. So much valuable information shared for our listeners and it was great to have you on. So we'll call it quits for today and we'll see you guys next time. And thank you to everyone that listened. Thank Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe.